Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. This week we've got another special episode for you. Brought in a new guest. Well, not a new guest. He's been here before, but we have Dr. John Gazer with us this week. As well as the usual suspects, Max Garvey. What's up, everybody? Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So we want to welcome Dr. John Gazer. Welcome back. Howdy. John, Dr. John. It's good to see you again. No doctor necessary unless you're oh, a veterinarian. Then, then we'll bring <laughs> the doctor credentials. Just as long as you're not putting on gloves and asking us to uh, turn our head and cough, I think we're all good. <laughs> we can we can do all right there. Yeah. There were shots fired last week, John. I don't know if you heard, but um, there were. I've gotten a little bit better listening to the Tilth Talk right, podcast. Right. I don't know if I'm a Tilthy yet, but uh, we we have no qualifications for Tilthies. It is a set the bar, whatever, bar yeah, low. Whatever, yeah, you can be in the club with. However much you want to be. I don't know if we can set the bar low enough for me, (laughs) but uh, we we, we can try. We (laughs) might need a barn shovel to scoop scoop me off the the floor. But, uh, yeah, I I had the opportunity to listen to the esteemed Bill Eberly, world-renowned Bill Eberly, uh, episode ago. And I tell you what, it's humbling to walk in his footsteps, guys. Uh, I, I don't know what to say aside from it was amazing to hear him just utter my name. Uh, but, you know, in all seriousness, I, Bill, Bill's a fantastic guy. Uh, what a resource for our industry. And uh, enjoyed. I had a few laugh-out-loud moments listening to that, that uh, episode, uh, which I appreciate. Every, every little bit of no, laughter. We had to feed him, to like, place. a couple Diet Dews just to get him rolling, you know? Get him hopped kinda, Yeah, get him, get him rolling, and then it was just let him rip. Yeah. So. And, and he, I don't think he knew that I was going to follow in his footsteps. He, 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 he literally he did not. So that was great. So that this was, is the good Lord bringing us together, yeah. I think. But now, now <laughs> I can clean up every, every little bit of error and or <laughs> what stuff he, that, that he put <laughs> forth, right? So just ask me the questions again, and we'll just correct everything that That Bill sounds had. good. Yeah, he was the just happy to be... Happy to be back before you got back. That was his, his yeah, main tongue, tongue in cheek, but but Bill's fantastic. Here here's one little uh, bit of insight that you guys that we didn't cover uh, with, with Bill, but he he's gotten himself into incredible shape. You, you may notice that, but he, he's taken his health and and fitness uh, very seriously. That's been an area that he and I have talked outside of agriculture. I'm a I'm a ruminant nutritionist. I'm a I'm a nutritionist, so I should know something about nutrition. Do I actually practice that? Probably not too much, but Bill's gotten himself into incredible shape. Proud of the guy. He's absolutely kicking tail. So he not only knows cows, he knows a little bit about, about human nutrition as well. So I, What's funny you say that is after it, I, we, he got talking to me a little bit about it, and I told him he looked better now than he did in his 30s. And I didn't know if that – at first I'm like, I hope that's a compliment. I don't mean <laughs> yeah. to, like, say that in a bad way. He's like, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're good. He was – yeah, it's cool to – in agriculture, it gets hard to find the time always to put towards Make the time, boys. that. Make the time. Put yourselves it's, first, at least from a health and nutrition standpoint. <laughs> He's looking at me when he said it. <laughs> wrestling practice starts yeah. soon for you, man. Yeah, right. That's so a, that's, you can just, yeah. you can just be that guy and wrestle all the middle school kids. And But, Todd, that, that's a, I hear that quite often because there will be folks, you know, I, I carry myself okay from a fitness standpoint. And I'll get the question of, yeah, I, or, or just a comment. I, I don't have enough time, but in, in all honesty, make the time because uh, just just getting started off on the right foot, whether it be in the morning or the afternoon, it helps out with mindset. It helps out with hopefully a positive outlook on life, and that's really important in our field because we work. We all work hard. We support producers that are working even harder than we do, and so I, I strong believer that health and, and fitness uh, are play play a part in our lives. What, what what we do. You're listening me? to Tilt Talk Radio, brought to you by Men's Health. I think yes. I was gonna. Say, I was just want to say. I think. I think Dr. John is turning into our David Goggins. Like he's our health coach. Like, health coach. I like yeah. That. 
I'll wear that hat. Yeah. But he's the David Goggins. You got to get up and make friends with the sun in the morning, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, We're looking for all sorts of new joint ventures. Maybe we've got Yeah, one. there we go. Are, are getting your steps in, is that because I have a ton of farms now that farmers, dairy farmers, farm wives that, yeah, like I had one say, oh, I'm going to go for a walk. I can get my steps in and. Just even that, I think, is a good thing, right? Absolutely. Just making sure they're... Pick out an activity. Like, Pick out an activity, just something that gets you moving a little bit, and that's a great spot so, to start and compete against yourself. Or yeah. find, you know, maybe among the three of you, right? Share, share your steps that you got in today and make it a little bit of competition. That's a great spot to start. Especially this farmer said, like, they used to milk cows, and they'd get 20,000 steps right. without Usually. even thinking. Yeah, yeah right. just that was just Tuesday. And now... It, it's more they have less physical labor to do so it was a good way to just nope i got to do something to make yeah. sure i'm getting these yeah, steps the in outside of scouting season for yes. us yes. scouting season we don't right. have from putting on the steps yeah, my, my wife i had one of those uh fitbit watches for a little while and we did the competitions and she beat me in like march but by june i was you know fifteen thousand steps ahead of her every day and she's like this isn't fair I'm like well you can be crop scout if you want yeah but i'm not yeah. gonna criticize your wife i feel like that would get <laughs> no she gets plenty of steps too, but it. I don't know how you can compete with a crop scout in the heat of the season. Like it's unbelievable the steps you can get in a day if if things go poorly. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. actually, is what it comes down to. If things go poorly, it's yeah. Respect the heck out of what you guys are doing to support our producers and just getting out and scouting fields, looking at the acres. We need that. So I hear you're one of the lucky few. Your your kids are back in school, huh? Yeah, we we kicked the the new season off yesterday dropped the kids off and they, they came home and they crashed pretty hard but we get going a little bit earlier than than the local public schools and they needed it happy to have them back in third and fourth grade <laughs> that is neat they're starting because start, they get done earlier than in may or they, I, they had the air conditioner working yesterday because that was a lot yeah, of schools closed yeah. early because they didn't have air conditioning they, they do get out a little bit earlier than than the other schools in the area but my daughter this morning actually uh, funny you mentioned that she she comes out with a sweatshirt on and we've got our house set 72 74 in the morning overnight lucy why do you have a sweatshirt on it's gonna be 99 degrees today take that off dad i was cold in in mrs broad's classroom yesterday <laughs> all right yeah our air conditioning works yep. well there were some uh, delay schools that were supposed to start yesterday and just said don't even we're, we can't run or just come come on friday or is there really yeah i was it shawano oh, yeah. or something like even that? without they, schools in session you've got football going on a lot, a lot of football a lot of got, sports things that get started in august here that it was interesting to see the even football the teams that there. did they move well, uh, their time yeah for high school it was interesting to see the teams that just pushed practice back and then between the teams that canceled it all together because i'm thinking like man that if I were a coach, I'd have a tough time canceling. Come playoff time. You know, you'll know the difference between these. those two teams. Right, exactly. I saw exactly. Uh, the Freedom High School football team did a water balloon fight for conditioning yesterday. That was their... That's pretty good. The, the, the football club stepped up, donated a bunch of water balloons, and they had a water balloon fight for conditioning, which I was like, that would be pretty... That's all right. Well, as, a, nice as a high school age kid, that would have been the best. Can you imagine hitting you, your... That's a you imagine you a junior in high school and you get to hit your football coach in the face with a water balloon? Like, <laughs> you're going to be about that. Do you any coaching, John? I, I'm I'm getting into little league baseball. So I, I've done some rec rec league yep. uh, coaching, but I played through high school with Fondy. Uh, I'm a Hall of Famer at the Fond du Lac High School, if you can believe wow. it. Wow, that's awesome! J- just by association, our our, <laughs> uh, our team baseball team won won the state championship in in year 2000, uh, which dating myself here, you can all figure out where I'm at in life. Just crossed the bridge over 42. 
uh, but uh, I'm a Hall of Famer without really contributing much, just being on the team. So, but no, take, taking some of that expertise, experience, and, and trying to Bring pass it along to, to my kid. That's you know. good. Nine year olds should throw curveballs, right? If they're oh, yeah, sore, yeah. just give them some Tylenol. Yeah. <laughs> just perfect. Yep, ice it, ice it at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, pitch counts. Who need them? Yeah. Watching, yeah, that baseball coach is a unique. Just unique because you got the. It's the instruction it, coupled it, with the parents and all of the riffraff. In yeah, in baseball, they, well, it, they there's activity, but it's they got to stop and think. They get a lot of time to you right. know when you're standing there next to second base, you got to know what you're going to do, or just and, keep them focused. Yes, from drifting right. off, looking at the birds right. and helicopters. Right, it is just a very uh, interesting sport for those kids, and we all grew up with it, so we know. And, and there's those dads that grew up with it and were just super hardcore, and the next dad that. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. We need we need more of the uh, the ones who want to teach the game and less the ones who are obsessed with the game. I think yeah, that philosophy way to seems to be more of like, oh, you didn't do it right the first time. You're not you're going to sit on the bench now. I know I've seen that with not my own kids, but some friends' kids. Of they get the the wrong coach, and sometimes it's not as it doesn't become fun, and they don't stick with the game. Whereas you got to balance that out a little bit. I heard one good co- baseball coach tell me the average retirement age of a baseball player is like, it was eight or nine. Yeah, it's, it was like, it's not fun holy anymore. Bit, yeah, right. it was like, wow. I mean, it's got to be a little higher now, but it was, it was very low. You know, you're, you're just, well, yeah, you want to make sure these kids... You've got to be a one-sport like, athlete now. Yeah. When we were in high school, it was a good thing to be a multi-sport athlete. The, now it's you. Nope, you're not committed to this sport. Year-round training camps, yep. speed yeah. camps, the, strength and conditioning. The, sat, the saturation in the baseball area, as far as these specialized coaches. So you go, you take a, a good high school baseball player in Wisconsin. He goes to a swing coach, a speed coach, a mindset coach, a throwing coach. Like he goes to all these, and then it, you know if there's a place to make money. There's for every one good guy. There's three that are knobs who didn't make their high school baseball team who are telling you your kid he should throw a curveball or whatever the other bad things are in baseball coaching, I guess. But so like that baseball is to me is by far the worst on the the specialized coaches and like a, you a average like Wisconsin doesn't produce a whole lot of baseball top talent. Let's just call it what it is because we play baseball for eight days a year. It's nice to play baseball probably. <laughs> And there's still are so an average high school kid in Wisconsin going to seven coaches to play high school baseball is nuts, um, but yeah, that's what I noticed about the baseball coaching thing. It's pretty, it's pretty wild out there. Give, giving me some some idea to maybe put the golf club back in Sam's hand or the shotgun. <laughs> hey, we, there's some other fun things we can do. We can do in spring. It'll be maybe a little bit. It's more still good. Yeah, it's still good to teach your kids. I'm, it's interesting we're talking about this without Bill on today. Yeah, the, Bill, baseball the, the baseball coach, baseball guy. Yeah, yeah. but just. From uh, watching kids go through those sports, it's it's fun to watch. It is. It's fun to watch when they're when they are having fun doing it. That, well, that's just it. Motivated, yeah. having fun doing it, and then yeah. we can get behind it. Yeah. Think about how cra- I watched the Little League World Series last night. Yeah. Like I enjoy watching baseball, and the Little League World Series is super fun to watch because about that throw from center field, right? Yeah. Getting the guy at home, or was that a couple last of nights night. ago? That was the that was I think that was when Panama was playing. Um, uh, China and Panama were playing, and they bottom of the sixth inning hit, scored two runs to come back, and then they threw them out in extras. I think is that the one you're talking about? I, I just saw a highlight, and there was I think a, it was a little guy that had an incredible throw from the yeah, field. I think that was Panama. Panama and China were playing, and 
Panama was down two runs in the bottom of the sixth, scored two, went to extras, and then they threw a guy out in the top of the seventh from center field that was frozen rope. Like, it was really awesome. It was cool. So, Little League World Series is uh, <laughs> is a blast. The other thing we got to talk about is fantasy football starts up. So we yeah. got Little League World Series We're going. Almost we got to the football, football right season, around yeah. the corner. Any fo- any fantasy football teams, John? I, I carry a couple of them. Yeah. So I've, I've got one with some college buddies that is going on. It's got to be 15, 20 years at this point. And then I'm, I'm also uh, proud to be a member of the Hordes Dairyman Fantasy Football League over the last couple of years. And that, that, that's a very different format. But, yeah, two, two leagues, very different formats. And uh, on the way up to visit with you all fine gentlemen today, uh, rather than listen to other Tilth Talk episodes or, or other podcasts, which could perhaps make me a little smarter in any way, shape, or form, no, it's fantasy football, and it will be all fantasy football all week. I think we're all getting excited for it. Like, yeah. you guys got a couple of, I know you're in a bunch. Yeah, it's just, it's fun thing to do on the side. It makes watching more football even better absolutely so good. absolutely a little bit like gambling in that we're looking for that that sleeper that that home run pick and in, in mid to late rounds that could potentially carry us over the top and then the bragging rights that could go with yeah. that as well it somehow justifies me not getting off the couch on sunday because i'm like i gotta watch for my fantasy, fantasy team, team babe yeah <laughs> my fantasy team needs me and invest in the red zone channel so you can just watch, watch. all the scores and the highlights <laughs> i heard that's all different this year it's on youtube yeah youtube yeah. tv That'll be interesting. Yeah, su- huh? Sunday ticket is too. Yeah, the whole yeah, the whole the whole thing, thing is yeah, on YouTube TV. It'll be interesting. We actually made the switch over to YouTube TV a couple of weeks ago. I'm impressed so far. So we'll we'll see what the red zone experience is well, like. Yeah, it is hard to find the right combination of sports when it comes to streaming. YouTube seems to do one of the better jobs. Uh, when when COVID hit, we didn't have anything for TV. Like we didn't have. DirecTV, Dish, none of that. We were just watching with the uh, antenna. And when we were spending that much time in the house, I was like, I got to do something. We bought YouTube TV, and I'm blown away. I love it. I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. It's awesome. Way better now, living in town, versus when we lived in the middle sure, of nowhere. Better we had no internet. Um, nailing town, it's... So you're not, like, squatted down on a phone trying to get reception and stare at I it. was when we... During COVID, yeah, I was. We were connecting <laughs> connecting the TV to our phones to be able to watch TV. It was... Yeah. But now it's... Yeah. But, yeah, I'm a big YouTube TV guy. I'll hit you up for tips later. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I have tips, <laughs> but I we do like we do like watching it. You got to buy the HBO for the month so you can watch Hard Knocks. That's probably the biggest tip I have for the year. Okay. Do your, do your Hard Knocks, your HBO for a month, so... Were you watching it with Rogers on it? I am not caught up right now. Okay. So I yeah, I purchased HBO. The The episodes are recorded in my library right now. I just got to go watch them. All right. Should we get into our topic for today? Yeah, let's go. So we wanted to talk some corn silage this week. Obviously, we're getting closer and closer to harvest as we move through the end of August here. And even though it's maybe not as early as we would typically see in the state it's not as far behind as i think we all thought it was going to be at the start of this season so what's uh what do you think john as far as timing out harvest do you think with between maturities and different germination timings do you see a big big challenge with silage harvest from what you're the farms you're working on or what do you what is your thoughts i've been making the rounds the last couple of weeks as we're gearing up to chop corn timing our, our chopping and 
mentioned earlier with you guys, my, my thoughts seem to be changing by the day. Either new information comes to light. Uh, Todd, Todd and I joined the PDPW Dairy Signal uh, earlier this week, so it, it, I was comparing and contrasting in my mind where we were yesterday, what we were talking about with where we might go today. I, I think it stands to be different because there have been a few more conversations that ensued yesterday afternoon driving up, uh, for example, and driving up, I can't remember what, what uh, is the north-south road, is it 55 going into Seymour? Yep. Ish. Well, you'd be on C or 55, one of them, yeah. One, one of the two, and I, I was looking to the east and I was looking to the west, and the the fields look dramatically different. The, the growing environment would have been tremendously different. different, but we, we had some short-statured corn to the east, and then we had some corn that looked, at least from the roadside, pretty good. We should talk about what we see from the roadside versus what might really be in that field. But mm-hmm. as far as what I'm seeing coming around uh, the corner, so to speak, as we get closer to chopping corn and timing out uh, our, our chopping, it is going to be all over the map, absolutely all over the map. I, I, don't, I don't know what we, we term the crop this year in terms of just put, putting uh, some sort of name on it, but I, it's going to be pretty wild. I think there's uh, upside. There's going to be some silver lining in this crop this year. But we need to be proactive. Uh, it sounds a little bit cliche. It seems like I'm saying that every year. I'm, I'm beating the same drum. Uh, but but put, put a bit more time and effort into staging our crop, making sure that we are in position to go, and then hitting the ground running. John, I think you used the word that I really like. We've been using the word variable out there. But what have you been using to describe this crop? So the, the, the term variable, variation, th- this is just getting annoying to me uh, from a, a personal standpoint because a lot of what I do in my world is talking about meaningful sources of variation, something that we can control. Well, Mother Nature has been outside of our control, so certainly rainfall, moisture, those will con- uh, contribute variation uh, and, and contribute to variation. So, for example, if we've got dry fields or wet fields, we're going to expect some different outcomes in yield and quality. But the term I've been using has been heterogeneity. Say it with me now. Heterogeneity. 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 Come on, Max. Come on, Max. Heterogeneity. Good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it. People like me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was going to be doggone it, and I have heterogeneity. 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 So let, let's, just, let's just think about uh, our Holstein cows and the, the black and white spots. So the black spots, the white spots, that's heter- heterogeneity. We've got various black spots all over the place. No, no two cows are, are the same. And then within a cow, uh, black spots and white spots don't necessarily, or white don't necessarily uh, form, form a pattern. I think we can, we can analogize uh, a dairy cow with a black and white uh, to, to what our fields may be looking like this year. I, I, I love that because I think we overuse the word variable, and every year we have variability. Like that's not uncommon for us to have field-to-field variability and within-field variability. But this crop that we have is, is definitely different. It's not... Lacks it, heterogeneity. It, it, very much so. It is, is just all over the board with what we have. So you're going to have some very... There's going to be a very diverse mixture in there, which, like you say, it's very heter, heterogeneic. I'm just trying to find out how to use this word, but I like it. Heterogeneous. So, it's yes. all, all over the map. All yeah. Heterogeneous. I, I have been practicing this word for a couple of weeks because I can barely master the, the English language. You, you pick up a little <laughs> bit of lisp. So I'm not all that great at speaking, but I uh, figured that one out at least. You know, I also think that this corn... It, Nobody really works with open-pollinated corn uh, today, aside from the Amish over our place yeah. in western Wisconsin. But I mean, a lot of these fields look like open-pollinated wow, I, corn. That is a great use of that, because I have not been in an open-pollinated field for probably 15 years. I know, and, I'm pretty smart. 
And these are <laughs> no, that's good. That's good stuff because these. And I don't think many of our like people listening have even been an open pollinator or rare, you know maybe seen it, but it's very close to what I saw with that, where you got some plants with two cobs, some plants with one cob, some plants with no cobs, some way behind. Um, so yes, you're right. We're we're think of you know the opposite of heterogeneity is homogeneity, and that's what we want in a cornfield. We want picket fence. We want the same thing. It cannot be diverse. We don't want that. We want the same plant just copied. So you're right. We do we do not have that out there in these fields. So I'm in the presence of experts and experienced agronomists, and I think we've covered in the past. But just to reset for all you listeners out there, I do have an agronomy pedigree yep. and background from the University of Wisconsin in plant breeding and genetics. So I at least have a couple of letters in the plant and agronomy space. But I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So leaning on you guys, what is contributing to this open pollinated like? Uh, situation that we're finding finding ourselves with, with and, and we're going to need to, to manage. Honestly, John, it really just comes back to emergence dates. And what it's odd when I say dates is usually all the corn emerges, hopefully, you know, within the same day or two. Sure. And we had emergence that, days apart. Yeah, that were 30 to, you know, and it wasn't always even the ones that say came at 30 days as we had at, at every rainfall period, you had a chant, which we didn't get a lot of rain, but you got some at that early stage yet. And so we have some fields that had, you know, three or four different emergence timings mm-hmm. that just made it just... And that, once you start that and you're running a different race, the plant acts differently, especially the ones that emerge late, try to play catch up. So they do different things than what they normally would and stage out differently. So... A lot of it started from that. I, I mean, a little bit probably could be from, you know, was a little hard to always get perfect depth control. So maybe it's a little bit planner related at certain times or your, you know, that, the way we got our seed bed in maybe wasn't as perfect as you sort of needed it to be this year. But a lot of it was just the variability in soil moisture at that time and then that contributed to both emergence timing difference and so that's really helpful for me to hear from an animal nutrition and forage management standpoint because often nutritionists and the harvesting crew they're they're talking closely together and the nutritionist is going to help with making uh, assessments or recommendations with regard to cut length and kernel processing score and we'll we'll, i want to come back there but let me put my professor hat on, if you will, and we won't go too far down this path, but everybody's fairly familiar with like a bell curve, right? Familiar with the bell curve and where the middle of the bell curve is, that's the average. And then as the tails go out, that's kind of, that's the distribution around the average. I think with the past few years, we've had pretty good growing seasons and we've had some unique observations that I don't know that they're going to carry over to this year. Todd, you're helping convince me of that. So maybe we need to take 21 and 22 and kind of put that in the rearview mirror and manage 23 for what it is. But if that bell curve all of a sudden isn't a bell curve and it looks like a box or maybe there's two little baby bell curves and there's there's two kind of segments to the, the distribution of our, our crop and fields or even within field, I mean, how, how or I'm going back to or I want to draw us back to is with the emergence, the deviations or differences in emergence that we just were are speaking to, what will that distribution, what, what will that bell curve turn into for this year so that then I can think about it from a nutrition standpoint? Thoughts? Ooh, I got... I, I think you, you you hit one of them right on the head is that double bell curve. I see that being a 
a, a very good possibility when the, the dust settles on how this is going to turn out that there's actually going to be two curves and it roughly looks like what, what um that you have uh there's a curve for everything that was planted before may 17th i believe and everything planted after may 17th and there's kind of two different yeah there was a distinct emergence pattern if you got in early enough so we had our last significant rain i think around may 7th in this area if you got in between then and mid-may you probably didn't have a significant difference in emergence timing but the later you got in the month of may after that the the drier things got and it was an exceptional amount of moisture leaving like i don't know any of us have looked it up but i would be really curious to see the evapotranspiration rates for May this year, which hey, is if not... you can master that term, you can definitely master <laughs> yeah. because we, we we talked about it later. Um, in some discussions I've had, but the dew point disappeared sometime in there, and we just weren't gaining any moisture in any way, shape, or form until June eighth or tenth, whatever, when we finally got rain. And so, yeah, there's a significant drop in soil moisture between that mid-May timing and the first rain really we got. So let's, let's jump on. If we've got this double bell curve, and if this thing looks like a couple humps on a camel, a, a two-humped camel's back, this is important for our growers and producers out there that are looking to chop corn for silage. And then any nutritionists that, that might be listening or uh, talk with your nutritionists from a, a, gr- a grower and, and farmer, uh, dairy farm perspective, because nutritionists are, are, uh, are going to be making recommendations or, or want to see kernel processing score or silage in the silo at a certain average moisture. But if we've got, if we've got a, you know, in the past we've used the term tricky beast, Corey Geiger, for example, with hordes had, had, had coined that term. But if we've got something different this year, our harvest strategy and timing this harvest is is going to need to be different. And we may find ourselves in a situation if we've got a custom harvesting crew coming in and we can't go at, say, harvesting the first batch, harvesting the second batch, if we just need to get it all done at one point, we may find ourselves needing to make a decision with regards to, all right, one of these two bell curves, one of these two camel humps isn't going to be ideal from a quality and moisture standpoint. And what do we do in that situation? Todd, this was something that we talked about. So uh, I, I think we should talk a little bit further about timing the average harvest or when we might want to go. But if we find ourselves, and I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but if we find ourselves in a situation where we're either going to need to take some early corn or, or immature corn or some later corn, I would say let that immature corn go and just go a little bit later because one thing I don't want to see and we haven't even talked moisture yet, but I don't want to see us harvesting immature corn where we've got dough, milky kernels, and then it's just leaching to, to, to beat hack once we put it in the silo or on the pad uh, because we're going to be not only giving up starch and, and yield in the field, but we're also going to find ourselves, uh, and, and this is following again in Bill Everly's footsteps, talking about fermentation uh, within corn silage. If we've got, uh, say, 68, 70, 72% moisture, that fermentation is totally different. And in a lot of cases, not ideal from a feed standpoint. So uh, one thing that we need to do this year is, regardless of what we're faced with and what Mother Nature has given us from a quality standpoint, and uh, working with your team and and others hopefully have uh, as good of a crop as we can, we need to optimize it. We, We can't set ourselves any further back. Todd, Todd isn't going to toot his own horn, but I'll, I'll toot it for him. Todd got to speak last week at a 
at a field day. Um, and he actually presented some data on how we need to adjust our moisture targets for this year to compensate for that. And 1.9% was our was the, was the suggestion as far as how far we need to move our moisture target down this year from our normal to uh, compensate for the inconsistencies with later plants that are going to be that dough stage probably when we're chopping. So let, let's talk about that because it, it'll be a different, if we're running a chopper out in a field, we're going to be getting everything. But tell me a little bit more about what you're talking about in terms of moving that, that target because that's going to be important for us to That's a good point. This is, yeah, you're right. So backing up to if, if what is our first step is usually doing whole plant moistures running that through a lab like Lock River Labs, run it through a coster tester on your farm, getting that moisture back. And like Max said, how do we compensate for this heterogeneity that's out there? And you're not going to grab every plant. There's no way you can. Even even we talked and talked about grabbing more plants. Like, oh, we'll grab up to 10. Yesterday I was in the field grabbing them, and I grabbed 10. I, could, I couldn't hardly carry it out of the field. Really? You know, like, because you're just, which... It was. They were good sized plants. Okay. So I'm like, but you're uh, talking hand harvesting some plants. Yeah. This is okay. just when for that way, you know, when you're just doing the first sort of burn downs. Yep. Um, so I'm like laughing about that because that was one of my suggestions: was grab ten plants, and then I, I couldn't even. You got to get out on the Bill Everly Health yeah, Plan and just get a little bit stronger. You should right, see I, my I, eyes roll when you said that during that meeting last week. Yeah, so I was like, is he serious right now? You just need a dr- I, one of those uh, yeah, spray a, or yeah, get a payload drone to lift it out. out. Right. Yeah, out of the field. no, I, I you hit the headlands where the stalk gets weird way, and you, you know you're trying to navigate it's, through that with like a like carrying a dead body. Or, or, yeah, it's it's not so much the, a, the weight uh, of the yeah. plants; it's the <laughs> length <laughs> and the fact that they just kind of fall apart. They don't really like to stay together because they're not balanced evenly. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. So I was just laughing about that because I, that was one of you know, sort of a tip or trick. I still think we need to grab as many plants as you sort of can. But after grabbing those moistures, in general, we had two points. Kind of that's the old yep. adage. I, John, any idea where that even comes from or if that's just a... Well, there, there's some intracellular moisture, and here I'll go okay. uh, scientific on us all, but there, there's some moisture, I believe, that when we don't run samples through a, a self-propelled forage harvester with a KP, there, there's a lot different shearing power, a lot different pressure that explodes cells. When we run corn stalks through a chipper like in the back of Max's truck, we're not exploding cells. So then there's some moisture that's locked so tight, this is my theory, in, in that plant and on a cellular level, we just don't get it all Can't out. Get it out. Yeah, we don't okay. get it all out. So that's where I think uh, we it, add a couple of points. And even that, that couple of points was always just sort of like that's literally like, sometimes it's three points sometimes it's zero it's just kind of the feel to it so with that add in two points and that's where where this year i think you got to add another sort of two points so you're going to add four points potentially when you do those first ones then when the chopper goes through i think you're going to see that it potentially you you think it's sort of drier than it really is because when the chopper rolls through um, you're going to have those sort of extra points we added. So, like you say, once the chopper rolls through and you do test loads, so that's the kind of the step two in the process, you're going to want to do test loads earlier than what you would have in past years where you just said, oh, you know, let's do... And, and for some reason, how this always lines up is around a weekend. So maybe instead of waiting until Monday to do test loads like you normally would, do them Thursday or Friday. Yeah. Or if you're going to wait till Thursday and Friday to start, do some test loads Monday. Just get out, get the chopper. It's not a bad way to even get your chopper you know tuned up ready to go get all the bugs worked out get maybe a few fields opened and then just do some strips down the middle once you do test loads i think then that two points you know then obviously that's already mixed in there 
But I think then that double bell curve, is there anything that you think we'd be getting from a, you know, an amount of samples you'd have to take, say, even per field to capture that because you're going to have certain areas that are different? And we've always had variability, so we kind of know that. When, when we do commercial dairy or field research, one thing that we're often hindered by is just not getting enough samples, not, not just, getting enough data. And... Taking one sample, for example, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times where it's been a, a dairy or a nutritionist that have sent me a, a feed test on a hybrid in one field and a feed test from a hybrid in another field. Say, hey, what do you think about these hybrids? I have no flipping idea. I, I don't have a clue. Sure. Uh, we, we need at least three to five samples of something to get an idea of what it is. And uh, this has really been driven home for me as we've been looking at working with some dairies that are testing their feeds three to five times a week. I mean, holy buckets is their noise to any sort of sampling. So coming back to the field level, historically I've recommended at least three to five sets of stalks coming out of field to characterize a field, or maybe spread those out among more fields. But this year, with the wide heterogeneity, that wider distribution of the bell curve, I believe we should spend a little bit more time and effort or maybe bring our kids or pay some high school kids to just go out and get, get some more stalks and, and bring Max out to chip them, up, chip them up for us so we can get some moisture on more sets of samples. How we spread those out, we, we can we can discuss what makes sense with regards to what our crop is looking like, uh, how far spread out we are in our acres, et cetera. But I think we need we need a, a little bit more insight. We absolutely need more insight to help make informed harvest decisions, harvest timing decisions this year. I, I like that idea, John, is because one of the things I was thinking is we do samples more often and less, and you've kind of driven home to me, is like you still have to do them more often but you still have to do a lot of samples too this year. This isn't going to be one where you try to skip a field yeah. or, or not maybe a field, but like you still want to represent that whole crop. And so that's one other strategy. Um, we're kind of starting sampling earlier than what we normally would Appreciate to get that, that. baseline, mm -hmm. get that number earlier. So, you know, okay, e even it's almost laughable when we were doing these samples as with my dad yesterday doing some, and it was like, why, are, why are we doing these? It's, you know it's going to be over 75% moisture, but at least you know that number. And if some of them, you know, some of them, these early ones, some are coming back at 73%, some what, are at 78 What are the kernels so, looking like? We were talking the, moisture. Yeah, the, gonna... the kernels are, honestly, what shocked me is usually when you chip up a, a, the sample, you can find kind of where that slugs through the chipper and you got areas of sort of stock and then areas of kernel and area. You, do you guys agree with that? that yeah. And yeah, you kind of try to mix yeah. that up. This stuff this year, you so far this early stuff. And any time it is early stuff, it's like this. But I would say it the the kernels so far are still extremely milky. There's yeah, just okay. so much moisture yet. I mean, and we're doing stuff that has no milk line on it, so that yeah. makes some sense too. Yeah, I, I, have any of us um, seen dented corn at all? Not technically. I swear, I guys. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's sort of started, but even that, it seems like this. That would you would you guys agree? that the, you know, in past years, it feels like the cobs were ahead of the, the stalk. This year, the stalk is a little bit more mature than the cobs have been. Uh, I think it, I think you might be onto something, but I also think it changes on a daily basis, Correct. whether it's we, 95 degrees or 75 degrees. Or if we get two inches of rain again, it, right at harvest, it, the, the stalk will suck right. that up. Well, and, let's and talk a little bit about what we're seeing then from a plant health standpoint, because the, that, that not healthy. <laughs> not healthy dehydrated and not well, healthy not, dehydration not scenarios but no but that's where that's what i'm well look at your the, yeah these guys that are in these drought areas 
the yields are going to be hit, but they're maybe better than we thought. Yep. However, what Max is getting at, he's right, there's enough necrotic tissue on that plant where it cannibalized the bottom leaves because it didn't have enough moisture to keep them going. Okay. And that's, whole, you, you got all kinds of not healthy plants. Whole then. plant moisture is going to suffer from things that happened in June because we've been pulling moisture out of that plant that that plant didn't have to give. And now, um, so you're seeing plants that are super green from, you know, about three feet up, they're super green because yep. we've gotten rain lately, but some of those parts on the bottom, we they're gone. They're dead. They're, they've moved on from this, this life. They're, they're done. And so that's going to be where, uh, Todd, last year you did, um, like the bottom third of the plant, the yep. middle and the top third, and then the cob. If you did that this year, I think your numbers would be way more distributed. You'd be all over the board on that. Um, because there's so many and, and it's super area in a field specific, um, like Dane, Dane County versus Dodge County, they're next to each other and it's not even close to the same thing. And yeah. you go from one side of Dodge to the other. There's no no way to generalize this year in any way. Yes. It's, What's our Holstein cow? Yes, <laughs> it is. What's been interesting I, to me is seeing some of the worst corn plants look healthier, and I'm doing finger quotes, than some of the early stuff that looked really good, even though it was droughty, and now that looks worse. That's been interesting to me, how the, those plants have adapted through the season. As we're as we're cracking through, some, I'm going to agree with you, Matt. As we're cracking through some of these yield estimates now, um, trying to make decisions on you know if we have to buy some more corn or figure some of that out. Stuff all year that I thought, man, they just keep surviving. I don't know how they're doing it, but it's looked awesome all year. Is now coming back, and the yield estimate is within three bushels of the stuff that looked like it was dead in June. And I don't, I don't understand how that can happen, but that's what we kind of have. My my yield estimates have. If you took top to bottom every field I've done. I bet you there's 15 bushel difference on the whole thing. And that's from Central Sands Corn to Dodge County, you know, uh, Corn Grower Association winners. And it's right there. So I don't, I don't, uh, I guess some plants showed their stress early and got it out of the way. And others are just starting to show their stress now and into that cob formation. That's kind of the, the problem. Well, let's talk about, we've really had definitely two different growing seasons. Um, and now maybe we're starting into a dip, you know, already again. But we had that hot, dry, I wouldn't say hot, but hotter than normal, dry, very dry. And then all of a sudden when we got that rain, very different from then till now. We're just different things coming in different problems. And it seems like these, you got your varieties that can capitalize on the hot, dry, did well through that, and then sort of are falling on their face now. And then you got the flip oh. side of the ones that I, can't handle that. <clears throat> I'd have a hard time saying anywhere it was too wet, though. Like I don't. Nowhere's been too wet. You're right. Moisture. Nowhere. Nowhere is. I, I think the difference is there's areas where it have stayed consistently dry through the season versus those that have received some moisture. Here, my best, my best, best hypothesis right now on why these things have kind of leveled out um, is that the earlier stuff that got planted early got up and going right away, and. Um, and so it made cobs maybe during some of the drier period where some of this later stuff has gotten rains right as the cobs were forming. And that's kind of put them into this melting pot where they're ending up they're close to each other because their physiological maturity has been different. And some hit, some started off better, had better weather in the beginning, and then got bad weather through pollination. And other stuff had bad weather in the beginning, but now through pollination is 
it has picked up and been better. And I think that's where the the even or the even yield estimates are gonna kind of be. That's where they're kind of coming from. But yeah, it's yeah. hard to say. I think there was a very vast difference in pollination across a lot of these areas just because of how that timing went early on. Like like we said, that double bell curve, the the early batch hit pollination at one time, and that second batch hit pollination. Yep. And it could have been for the positive or negative either way, just based on planting date. From a quality standpoint, John, on the double bell curve, so you got a plant that tried to pollinate but never pollinated the cob, the real late emergers. What's the quality from a, obviously from a starch quality, there's zero, you're not getting any starch. But from a, and I'm, I think it'd be like a, and you have to give me terms better, but like an NDFD, probably okay quality potentially. But tell me what you think from a quality standpoint where you got that really heterogeneous, just very different, where it's the the advanced stuff versus that. Are we going to see where it, that double bell curve of that will actually come in to be pretty good quality still? So, or do you think so it'll be different? this discussion of pollination in ear fill, uh, you can't see my ears because they're covered up, nor are they all that big, but my ears perked up because I'm, I'm very interested to, to gain from your insights and thoughts with regards to what's pollination looking like and what's ear fill looking like because that's going to ultimately drive our energy value per ton or per pound. It's, it's starch. And so we, we talk a lot about fiber digestibility and historically have as nutritionists, but the amount of starch, the starch digestibility, that grain really drives the silage quality. Nutritionists don't always look at it like that because the higher fiber digestibility in the silage that puts cows and beef cattle in a position where they can eat a little bit more. So then the more that they can eat, typically the more they can produce. But really, it's the grain to stover ratio that drives our forage quality. So that's a really big point that I am uh, uncertain on right now. And and, but as we talk about, I'm, I'm very interested as far as the fiber digestibility. So as I look at as I look at a feed test, Rock River feed test, for example, the best on the planet, nobody ever even comes close. Hint, hint. <laughs> Got to get some smiles out of people. But as we look at uh, a forage test from a commercial feed testing lab, really corn silage, it's going to be described from a quality standpoint by fiber content, starch content, fiber digestibility, like you just mentioned, Todd, and then starch digestibility. But really, it's fiber and starch are the two first factors. And if we think back to our old milk 2006 model, fiber and starch amounts really drove that model. So higher milk per ton, higher milk per acre, typically were higher starch, higher grain to stover ratios. Now, that doesn't mean it it, it is exactly dictated by grain yield because we could have, say, 100, 120 bushel corn that could still be pretty high starch content if that corn is as tall as I am at about four foot two. Another joke. <laughs> I'm five nine. <laughs> I, I like where you're going with that because I don't think we realize as agronomists how much that matters of that. Right? We want a big giant plant always for yep. tonnage. Yep. But if you don't get a big giant ear along with that plant, your 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 ratio will be off. And I I would weigh in and see what you guys think is our grain to stover ratio should be quite good this year in that the grain portion because you've got a smaller plant structure i love hearing i this. It, i don't see us having any problems with that there, there are silver linings in I, this crop like we've talked about over the last couple of days there there are two silver linings i think let, let me come back to the, the fiber digestibility and the fiber quality so 
Uh, Max, you got my attention a little bit. If we do have a substantial amount of necrotic tissue and we've got a fair portion of dead plant, that's, that's going to be an issue. I, I don't know what amount of our biomass will be that dead tissue, so that's slightly concerning from my perspective. Well, John, from, to drive that one home, cutting height we know increases quality if you raise Correct. cutting height. Do you think that that has to do with that necrotic dead pl- tissue at the bottom, or is that a green plant all the way down and it's still because of the stalk? But maybe where I'm going with that is, do you think this would be year to watch cutting height for a lot of reasons, and that would be one of them is to potentially increase quality? Yeah, I, we're, we're going to be stretched for yield breakers. Yeah, so right. Cutting height. Right. Our growers out in California, where we've got ample water like we haven't had in 10 years, or down in Texas, where we're growing jungle corn, absolutely get that up go, 12, 24 inches. Go higher, sure. Here in the Midwest, no. We're, right, we've we got to go down. And, good. I, and I like where you're going with that, because I think too many people, that was... That was a point that I've heard out there, like, well, just increase cutting height. And I'm like, yeah, we don't have the yield to, no, to do that. that. No. Like, we don't. I mean, we already talked about shorter corn. Yep. So by increasing cutting height, you just shorten it usually by another foot. Like, we, we don't. So, th- yeah, thank you for driving that home. But I, I do think, e- even with potentially, let's just say we have 3 to 5% necrotic tissue. I don't know what it's going to be. But I think, on average, we're going to have pretty high fiber digestibility this year, leaning on some of Joe Lauer's work that has detailed the the drier the conditions the first half of the year we tend to have a little bit higher fiber quality a little bit more digestible fiber so i'm I'm expecting we have decent fiber digestibility in the crop this year and then if we if we get okay pollination or if if we have okay ear fill and we get a little higher starch feed i think we have tremendous energy potential potentially on the horizon for the crop this year that's exciting news for us that's good if you're not going to make a lot of feed it better be good feed yeah. Right? right. I mean, that's, I know that's oversimplification, but that's really what it's going to come down to for us this year, I, I, I think. And I, I think you guys are probably right. I think, John, you're probably right that it looks like we should have a good ratio. And generally, dry weather leads to starch, right? I mean, am I crazy on that? Yeah, I, think you're, I think you're on it. it. Dry weather leads to more starch, usually. So, I mean, we have some starchy corn silage. I, that, no, I've never had a nutritionist complain it. Well, that's not true, but. Very few have ever complained no, about too much never starch. Complain. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's all thanks to the wildfire smoke. That's oh my god! Year, right? We're back to this again. Yeah. Hey, let me let me ask a question. I thought about this coming up today, but can drones and just flying over some of our fields can that offer any sort of meaningful insight with regard to timing our harvest? We're, we're going to go based upon moisture. We got to figure out where moisture is at. We got to make a decision to go or not go. But can can drones help us out at all? Uh, we're all looking at each other because we know the answer is yes however it's the amount like we've been flying over these fields since you know june and to pull out some of the variability Mm -hmm. and see some of that to to help um we've had we've heard of drones that can do almost like an nir photo from the air and kind of try to help but it's none of it's sort of calibrated yet and ready for for the limelight and then like we just talked say your field's got a lot of dead tissue at the bottom, your drone maybe won't see all that potentially. But I, I think there's room to help. I just don't know that I would put it at the top tier. Like, I have go do that over... None in terms um, of expertise. But that, that was something I thought about because this is a year where we can't have enough samples. We can't get I, enough data. What, 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 maybe that's a good point in that we use drones a lot now to, to get a what I call the silo view. Sure. Go up, look from 80 feet. Okay, what's going on in that spot? What's going on in that spot? Get boots on the ground, go look at it. And 
that would from a silage dry down part that would make a lot of sense okay where's about my average spot or i don't want to be on this or maybe i do i want to look at the dry spot and the wet spot or something like that that might be that could help you a lot um i i don't know that we have the 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 what's the way to say it there's a lot maybe better just getting more samples i think would help us rather than trying to overthink the technology is going to help down the road i'm not saying that won't but man just even what running some choppers out does to getting that moisture right would be good uh the the drone stuff is great we use it a lot where we can but i i feel like over the last 15 years we've seen all the over promising from sure. what the drones can do and then we get to a point to like actually what how do we use them i, and they, I just they wasn't get sure if, so as a nutritionist as i walk the cows i can pick up body condition score just with a visual and i can get an idea of where the herd is at as far as average and distribution with energy uh, and how yeah. fat or thin they are but i didn't know if, if that if you had that kind of experience and comfort where you could through some drone just imagery subjectively take a look at it and say all right we've got this that going on so it, i i think in some different conditions we can so like 20 19, 19 the drone was super helpful to do the drown outs yep. and yep. figure out percentages of fields that were basically zero that is pretty easy but you're comparing black and white there it's when you're comparing 80 shades of gray that it the drone kind of loses its now, fr- so we're breaking away from my holstein analogy now we're going to <laughs> yeah. yeah now we're yeah we're looking at jerseys or well, brahmins <laughs> or something now maybe one of the hard part is some of this the heterogeneity from the air is actually sometimes it's easy to see sure. if it's extreme but the the ones where it's just a little bit, maybe five thousand year plants are late. You cannot see that easily. You're just from, looking at tassels. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as easy to pick out. You can pick out, yeah, what what the stock looks like, but you can't see the cob. You yes. can't really tell the double cob part. I mean, and yeah. granted, you, we're doing it sometimes where you fly down close to the canopy, kind of use some of those images, but um, no different than a boots on the ground look. Then really great insights. Yeah, I. I, that part of all of this, I think we got to find ways to make it better, this whole system. I don't know that that's going to happen soon, but I don't know uh, what that even means. But the our current system to get this moisture, I feel like morphed from, you know, even 20 years ago, it was just a couple of nutrition. Like, as agronomists, we didn't do this at all. Like, at all. We didn't, I don't want to say we didn't care about the moisture. It was important. But that part was, that was the nutritionist's job. Like they figured that out. They and maybe where it morphed over time is they didn't even know where the fields were or anything. So they'd call you up and be like, "Hey, you know where are the fields for silage? You know, I'm going to grab a couple stalks." And then you know now it's changed to with forage councils doing dry down days and different things doing that. That there's more opportunity to get that number figured out, but. It makes it, sense that the guy who's been in the field since the day it was planted right. probably should look at it, not not someone who hasn't looked at it once and then tell them, hey, go get a representative sample, sample. and figure it out. It makes sense why it's uh, it falls on our shoulders. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself a feed expert by any means. Right. I, I think yeah. it should be in tandem. It's got to be in tandem. I mean, if, if not this year, then never. But with, with what we're seeing this year, and, and the nutritionist is going to have some, some ideals in mind, and I've learned a tremendous amount the last couple of weeks talking to, to your team as, as experienced agronomists and others, and I've got a background in agronomy. I'm, I'm still learning by the day. So uh, our nutritionists out there, if anybody's listening, I mean, get on the horn with your, your agronomist for your clients you're working with. Have some conversations about what the collective goals are. Uh, ensure that we're at least on the same page there to start. And then coming back to responsibilities in terms of checking the crop, getting an idea of where we're at for moisture. And moisture is going to, what's going to drive our harvest decision, even if it's widespread. 
But where, where does the responsibility transition? I, one, one question or thought I had this morning was, how much do your team and agronomists get involved in harvest management? Beyond timing and sending the chopper out and saying, hey, we're going to go, is that it? Or do you find yourself with some questions uh, coming your direction with regards to chop length or kernel processing score? Yeah, we're all shaking our heads no, John, because in, in general, that's... That goes to the nutritionist then. It like once it goes from like plant to that truck crosses that line, and starts dumping in so that. Bunk. The chopper, it's yeah, crazy. right, right. It's like oh, we're done. Like, like here, we're, here's, here's but, a gap and here's an opportunity because I and, and I, I put this out on the socials last week or two. I've been putting some corn silage harvest t- or corn harvest for silage tips out on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. So if you want to follow me at J O H N G O E S E R, shameless plug. <laughs> I'm old enough now where I don't care. Uh, but but the, uh, today's comment was with regards to theoretical length of cut. So that TLC, is that, that acronym, but the length of the, that we chopped that forage. And what we saw in 21 and 22 was a different plant. We healthier plants, green top to bottom. And my, my belief and understanding is that the fiber digestibility was better, and that was attributed to just healthier Stover health, healthier leaf tissue, but we also didn't have the physical structure to that forage and stover. And uh, where, where this hits home is, is I've talked to a number of dairies and, and some producers and gotten some questions from nutritionists over the last year. There have been more piles caving in, which is interesting. It's, That's a severe, I mean, a very serious health um, and safety concern, safety concern more than anything. And uh, I believe that there, it, it stems back from plant health and or fiber, de- fiber integrity from the field. So coming back to where do the responsibilities shift, I believe agronomists should be part of the discussion with regards to our theoretical length of cut. Because that fiber digestibility, that fiber quality, if we're harvesting a field that is 65%, but it is overly mature grain and super green tissue relative to if we're harvesting a field that's 65%, and it's half milk line, and we've got some half dead stover and tissue. We should not be chopping those the same so, so at all. So, give given you want a shorter length of cut then on the. the what, give us the the actual we, what we the can, data shows we, can, we need to do. Uh, th- this is where I'm I'm going out uh, on the thin ice, and I I don't know that there's a whole lot of data here from okay. a research perspective, but from from a, uh, a nutrition perspective and from a pile integrity and and, and just fiber uh, structural fiber standpoint. If we've got dead necrotic tissue, we can get away cutting shorter. We know that the physically effectiveness, uh, physical effective factor associated with that fiber, and here's a nutritionist term, physically effective fiber, uh, it's going to be more effective or more woody. Yeah. Okay. If it's dead necrotic tissue, that got it. You don't need the length of cut to slow it down in the rumen or anything. But if we've got higher fiber digestibility, healthier plants, and this is how's a nutritionist going to know this? This is your guys' expertise. If we've got that just just great potential in that stover or healthier tissue, more digestible fiber, or stressed and or less integrity to the stover, I think we should be chopping it longer. Absolutely, be chopping it longer. We can get away with that. And the rumen will be just fine. In fact, cows might even be more efficient. Plus, we might be able to hold our piles together a little bit better, which is a a big concern. Now, that'll have ramifications on kernel processing because the the longer we we set the the length of cut, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to to process our kernel. But I had that question driving up this morning. Just how much do you and your team at Agronomist get involved in the harvest management decisions? I can say 
in uh, I don't have this long illustrious career in agronomy, but in five years, kind of kind of working on my own, I've noticed already that I need uh, farms are interested more in my opinion on the pile. So like even as far as going to watch cut length, packing some of that stuff, because it's all part of the it's all part of the process as far as making the decisions for next year. So I'm finding myself not necessarily in the way that you're talking, John, as far as what am I going to do to fix it this year, but seeing what the ramifications are on our cut length or packing density or kernel processing or some of that stuff to how it's going to affect our crop rotation. So we're going to take an extra 40 acres because this isn't right. Or we, we don't need to take as much, so now we have some grain corn that we didn't plan for. So I'm starting to end up on the back end more than I was five years ago, I guess, is how, is how I would say it. And I think that's going to continue. And based on what you're saying, from your perspective, it should continue. Yeah. I appreciate the insights of, of why that's important because it always was like just stay in your lane both, both ways. Nutrition is ground. It's like you stay in your lane, I stay in my lane, we're good. You know, there's no... Absolutely there, not. And, and I feel like we've gotten a lot better of of what you just described actually makes a lot of sense of if we tell them the physiological makeup of this corn that'll have ramifications for how we chop it so i do like that and i think that's nutritious wants to see a certain outcome but that is going to be at least in part dictated by what that crop health quality maturity is and that you're seeing and feeling that as you're scouting and and setting the crop up to succeed for for our producers out there so I, i we, we need these insights to help us adjust length of cut, harvest timing, kernel processing score. It, it's all hand in glove. Yeah. We, we all, uh, so you had talked about what you and Corey Geyer came up for the 2022 crop. And I just, I, it was the tricky beast. I, I still think that actually fits for this year. I think it's still going to be a tricky beast. I really do. However, we want to come up with some new names and some other ideas. So, uh, I brought John's up on the PDW signal. John and I talked, and I told him my name for this year's. But Max and Matt also have one, so I'll start with mine. But this year, the do I get to judge these? Yes, so, you basically okay. do. Like you can just say how stupid they are, or whether we. I don't even know why we're we're naming the crop. I just feel like it's fun because this, this I do will, think they're okay. crop they're name different. cage match. Here we yeah. go. Says the guy who came up with the idea. Yeah, I don't uh, know why we're doing this. <laughs> I I thought the tricky beasts work well because. You don't think of corn silage harvests being or or that they're even different. You know, you just think of like, oh, it's just it's, it's just silage year. season. Let's silage, go. Yeah, and I and I feel like this growing season, there's gonna be somewhere. There's it just doesn't matter, but this one especially is just weird. So the the part, and I heard Joe Lauer bring it up last week at the you know the whole corn is king and alfalfa is the queen of forages and still kind of putting them in their place. And I always. I always liked that, and I thought this year maybe the king would be dethroned potentially. That the corn was looking really rough, you know, at second cutting alfalfa time, and we had alfalfa cutting that was like, how are we even getting any of this alfalfa off? It was just unbelievable. However, I still think corn is going to be king. It's still, you know, alfalfa did struggle in in third. It was a little better in fourth cutting, but it depended where you were at. But I I still think I'm going to use the word king. But this corn is just all over the board. You know, we talked about the variability, the heterogeneity, and I'm using the word crazy. It's just crazy out there. It's not, it's, it's going to be very hard to kind of place it. So, that, so my name for this year is the Crazy King. So that's, 
that's where I come up with, and that's what I got. So, Max, you go with what you got. Yeah, I got uh, Petulant Child is my name. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna. I went with the child thing um, because this is you know, a petulant child is your is that bratty kid from down the street, right, or however you want to say that. And the re- the reason I say it is because this crop, what we're what we've been given from Mother Nature, is kind of a beast. We there wasn't a lot of management decisions I think that got made wrong as far as what was best for the crop at the time. It didn't seem to matter though. You made a decision and two days later the weather, you know, didn't cooperate and you were given a whole nother, you know, pile of dog crap to make a sandwich out of. And so we just kept doing that over and over again. So this is this is Mother Nature's child that she gave to us and it it it's a little it's a little bit of a brat. I appreciate you defining petulant because I'll, again I'll acknowledge <laughs> my uh I guess stupidity. I'll just put it bluntly. I, I did not know what <laughs> petulant meant. Max was that child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very at home for him. Yep. All right. Mine I, was Raging Bull, which might be trademarked, but it's one of my favorite roller coasters at Six Flags. <laughs> and, and this year was a roller coaster. It was a slow start. You know, you're kachunking up the hill. Feels like you're never going to get there. And then we hit a point where we shot off. Some of us got stuck in the loop. Some of us roared through um, and are going to make the finish line, but it's just been, I think, similar to the craziness that the other two guys described. It's not not to be expected. Nothing was as we thought. There were surprises. There was excitement. There was disappointment. It was all there. And we, and we haven't even harvested yet. That's right. what and gets me. Like end, yeah. how? Yeah, so, just wait because fifty percent I mean, of our craziness comes in the like, next month. Like the roller coaster analogy. Like we're just we just waited the hour in line to get on the roller coaster. Like we haven't even truly taken. Some the of ride us are puking yet. in the first turn. I, yeah, <laughs> it is just so. I, I yeah, it's been a bit of a ride that way. Yeah. I like that. No, so. Uh, I I vote Raging Bull. All right, I, I, I like that. And, and, and part of that part of that is I didn't understand the word petulant. And then Todd, you and I had talked about Crazy Corn King, so that that had worn me with me a little bit. The the, the newness of it wasn't there. The shiny nature. I, I, of it. But I also had in the back of my mind as I was thinking, well, what could I name this crop? And I used the camel analogy before with regard to a couple of humps. I, I'll call it camel corn. I like that. Well, not, like what, especially if Joe Ma- Cool Camel yeah, or yeah. not Caramel Corn, but Camel Corn. Yeah. Camel Corn. Well, like you said, if our yeah our bell curve is the camel, it's a camel out there. Like all that does that that fits. That's that yeah, is it's really like the good. roller coaster. So well, and, and where it, do you, where do you find camels in the desert where it's dry? Oh, there you where go. were we for like all of June and most of July? Yeah. So you call it a uh, is it is dromedary? Is that the one with two two humps? The dromedary. Oh yeah, yes. uh, yeah, quite popular in in South America and Brazil. Yeah. And you can use that. Ba- a you can put a big word in it then, so yeah. dramedary. <laughs> just, just go easy on me with the, the English language, the English. It's, <laughs> I, don't, I scored in the 33rd percentile in my uh, entrance exams with regards to the English language and reading and writing. Just, just to put that out there for all of you readers of my uh, articles in Hand Forage and Hordes. These are being written by an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That must be why I like them so much because they're down. I can I can actually understand. Them oh yeah, when you get that great. when you get that entrance exam that. back and you, and you you see oh I'm in the lower third of all of the people that took this it just puts me in my place. <laughs> so I'm I'm happy to live up to that yet today. All right, I've, I feel like we've talk, over talked this crop, so I'm excited for harvest. I feel like it's time. That part of this is exciting. You know, we just 
it, it's time to, to harvest it. It's exciting that we're it, we're kind of getting to that Super Bowl of timings. Well, I, and I love the communication. I'm, I'm learning I, by the hour at this point. I mean, in discussions I, with, with you all and the, the Tilt team, I, I've picked up uh, another few tidbits that I'm going to look to uh, get out in front of other folks. Uh, I want to help you amplify your message and help influence producers toward making better decisions as we get up into the, the fourth quarter, as we, as we put it yesterday. Uh, I'm not going to call it 2018 or 2019 because those are a completely different beast, but it's the same, a little bit of the same mentality as we're nearing harvest where it's like, all right, like we've had to watch this all summer go up and down. Let's, let's get going. Let's be done with this. Let's move on from this one and, and get, get working on the next almost is kind of, I don't want to because it's not as bad as eighteen and nineteen. I don't think, but it, uh, that is the feel I get from it. Was a roller coaster though? Too. They just yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And as we think about just kind of our our final uh, fallback plans or, or things that we can do to optimize what we end up with, we, so we're going to work with our agronomists and our nutritionists. We're going to time our harvest. We're going to go at some point. We may end up with this roller coaster corn, the raging bull corn. Uh, that, that's going to be the winner today, but fermentation is going to be really important then because we do and will have less tons per acre. And we know that if fermentation goes sideways or down an undesirable path, we might give up another one, two, five percentage of the feed just through fermentation losses. So to build a little bit about what or build upon what Bill talked about uh, on, on the prior episode, uh, I, I think an inoculant this year makes a heck of a lot of sense. I don't have a, a dog in the race uh, with this one, but I, th- I think putting some sort of insurance in terms of a bacterial inoculant, packing the absolute heck out of it, uh, covering, sealing the the pla- uh, the piles if, if we're we're putting uh, piles up there or bunkers, doing everything we can to optimize that fermentation efficiency and, and save every ton we can. And I, I think this also might be a year to stuff our bunkers. If we can go find some extra acres or chop a little bit more corn, understanding our yields are a little bit lighter or maybe talk to some of our grain farmers in the area. Uh, if we do indeed have a little bit better fiber digestibility, if our crystal ball is uh, correct and the tilt team, I'm going to blame you all now with regards to what, what our expectations are in starch. But if we've got starchy corn, coupled with high fiber digestibility, stuff the pad, stuff the bunks. I think that's a good good thing to send home to guys because a lot of times years like this, they think, well, I'm just going to get enough to get by. Uh, I'm not going to buy that extra. We know that margins are tight, so it's right. you know that's going to be a tough one. However, I think that's good advice. Of we we know what carryover just does for your corn salad. Having that is important. And you're right if if they if this is the right time to buy, there's there's going to be some grain farmers out there that need to sell. Yeah. So so why not try to try to make those contacts and and that isn't something you're going to want to wait till harvest time either because then you're going to just you're too busy to to make that transaction happen. So that's something to start here in August now of making that communication and, and letting people know what, how much you want to buy, what you're going to buy. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Especially because I think it's a lot of, not on many people's radar. There's like, yeah, I'll take what I get. I'm good. Just whatever about it. And yeah. if look if, for the silver lining, look yeah. for the opportunities. They're out here. Yeah. I did feel a chill when John started talking. I, I could feel him going towards the inoculant side. I thought Bill maybe was here. Yeah. Standing he behind us. Yeah. His presence. <laughs> No, there are some really good groups out there with with high-quality products, but uh, I will also speak to the value that uh, our service providers and and the folks like Bill can bring to your farm in terms of just bringing a little bit of different insights or perhaps helping you out uh, as producers, growers, with uh, maybe taking on a few of the tasks. So that that, that is also a valuable aspect to what the inoculant or vendors can bring. John, is there anything you got? Wrap us up, send us home here. Any other things you're seeing out? 
owed any future endeavors? It's been crazy times. Yeah. I mean, this, this crazy King Corn. Uh, there, there's certainly been some financial hardship through the summer for our, our producers, for our growers, but uh, I sense optimism out there. I'm proud of our producers, excited about what lies ahead for us here in the States. We are certainly leading the, leading the pack or with, with regard to agriculture around the world. There are folks looking to come here and farm with us, uh, get into the ag community. So it, it, generally excited, generally optimistic. As far as where I'm spending a little bit more time or things on the horizon, we talked a fair bit earlier today about sustainability. And so there are uh, a number of programs, different initiatives, different groups. So I think we could probably do an entire another episode on the sustainability front. But I would encourage all you producers, growers, uh, and, and consultants and advisors out there, be part of the discussion, learn a little bit more about what programs are out there, uh, what initiatives there are with regards to uh, incentives and or uh, different management practices that that are known to or we're investigating looking at sustainability carbon emissions because that's not going away uh, and also getting into big data software data management things uh, that, that's an area where i'm dabbling around in a little bit so not going to go into it in any sort of depth but it's exciting times in agriculture i feel like we're on the cusp of some really wonderful things we need to continue to feed the world we're going to do just that and it's through good folks like yourselves your expertise and then hopefully i can bring a good thought here and there to, to the party as well. So exciting times. I like where you're going with all that. Cause I think there's a lot going on big picture wise. Would in, you tell me if you thought I was full of crap? We, n- uh, I tell you, I the big picture stuff, you know, we oftentimes on the farm get lost in some of that. Right. And the sustainability one is a very good example of all of us have heard it from, different areas there's a whole bunch of different programs coming out that so when you use that word i mean it's kind of a buzzword that means a lot of different things but i like that where you're saying especially to to specific dairy producers do your homework ask the right questions don't just assume you know well i got to do this or that there are new and emerging technologies showing up seemingly by the week by the month that are making claims to improve sustainability there are some out there that will improve efficiency so uh yield per acre or feed conversion efficiency, and those are the ones that we want to latch on to that we can identify and we'll, we'll, we'll check the box, so to speak, of, of being more sustainable, uh, cutting our, our greenhouse gas carbon emissions. And so uh, those do exist, but it's, it's tough at this point to wade through those. But that's why I think we need to be proactive and be part of the discussion to identify the technologies that will put your, your dairy, your farm in a position to seed economic, succeed economically as well as from an environmental stewardship standpoint. All right. Well, we want to thank Dr. John Gazer again for coming in to speak with us. And that'll do it for today. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us, Matt. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week will be our 200th episode, so we'll have a little special episode next week to celebrate that. Otherwise, thanks for listening. And as always, happy farming. Happy farming.